Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Dave Stevens, who, of course, is very well known to our audience as the former senior vice president of single family at Freddie Mac, executive vice president of Wells Fargo Home Mortgage, president and COO of the Long and Foster Realty Companies, assistant secretary of housing and FHA commissioner, and the CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association. He's joining me to talk about challenges in the MBS market and how those are affecting mortgage rates and the aggressive stance of the GSEs when it comes to loan buybacks. Dave, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Sarah. Good to be with you again. Great to have you here. I wanted you on because you wrote a very interesting opinion piece for us this week, and it was on who is going to buy the mortgages given what's happening in the MBS market. So would love to dive into that a little bit. Give us some background on how we got where we are today. Well, it's it's interesting because back uh, when the GSEs were put into conservatorship, um, as everybody knows, the preferred stock purchase agreement, which is the governing document that give, basically tells them what swimming lanes are allowed to play in, specifically uh, set them on course to uh, uh, um, get out of their portfolio business. And they had, you know, collectively they had trillions of dollars worth of mortgages in their portfolios between the two. Um, as uh, Lori Goodman, who works at the Urban Institute, uh, said in a recent article in Forbes, she said that would actually act as like a cushion for the uh, mortgage markets. If we had a shortage of buyers of mortgage-backed securities, the GSEs could buy the MBS. And, you know, as we all know, mortgages like treasuries, it's sort of a supply and demand barometer that if there's not enough demand um, and the supplies exceeds it, then the prices at auction will drop and the corresponding rates will rise. And if the GSEs would buy out some, we call it make a, creating a short, if they would buy mortgages, um, it would control rates from spiraling too far out of control. The Fed also played a role, right? After, after the GSEs were put into conservatorship, we really wouldn't have had a normal buyer of, of mortgage-backed securities. But because of the economy was so frail, uh, Chairman Bernanke and followed by other Federal Reserve chairs uh, all the way through COVID came in with what we call quantitative easing, where they bought mortgage-backed securities. That likewise helped keep rates relatively low and obviously really low in 2020 by the huge round uh, done by Chairman Powell. And so those are the real big buyers of mortgage-backed securities on this earth. I mean, there really aren't that many others. There's nobody else who buys in the historically in the volume levels that these guys have. And I remember talking to capital markets experts all the way going back to conservatorship asking me, you know, when this is over, who's going to buy the mortgage bond? Well, now we're feeling it because we are short. Um, we're short about $2 billion a day in purchase demand over the volume that's out there. And that's because the Fed's not buying. In fact, they're, they're uh, slowly selling some. And the GSEs are not allowed to buy. Um, they could buy a little. There is some room, but their conservator won't let them. Uh and I don't think has thought maybe thought about it that much yet, but that's creating the excess supply, along with the fact that Silicon Valley Bank and the other two banks have failed, also had MBS portfolios that the FDIC is selling. So that's adding to the supply challenge. And all of this is putting a lot of upward pressure on rates. 
where, you know, Sarah, as you, a lot of folks who write in housing wire talk about the spread, the spread between 30 year mortgages and the 10 year, which is a sort of something we watch historically is really wide by over a hundred basis points. Meaning if we had a normal demand, amount of demand for the supply that's coming to market, we'd have rates about 1% lower. And, uh, uh, never could, would that be more important than today <laughs> for the housing market, for first-time home buyers, and everybody who worries about affordability. So it's this is how we got here, uh, and now the question is, what do we do going forward? What do we do? And um, thanks for you know kind of drawing, you know, threading the needle between why this is important for mortgage rates, right, and and how this has a very direct effect and. As you said, boy, 1%, we'd take it. <laughs> we would take it all day long. Um, well, you lay out some options in in this piece. Why don't you w- walk us through what could be done differently? Well, you know, the, the, as I said, the big buyers were Freddie and Fannie. They're, and they, they really did act as a cushion, a, um, a way to calibrate uh, mortgage rates when we had uh, shortages of demand. Um Technically, under the PSPA, which is a very difficult document to change, by the way, there's a Fourth Amendment. I actually give the language from it in my op piece I wrote for you. It specifically gives a cap to how much they can hold a portfolio. The good news is right now they're about $120 billion below that cap. So in theory, they could be buying some MBS. Um, and remember, you know, $2 billion in shortage of demand per day is uh, is right now it's a relatively short period in time there's other reasons that are causing people to sit on the sidelines um which has a lot to do with duration expectations on mortgage backed securities i won't go down that rabbit hole but in the the uh, in the end of the day what we need is we need some um involvement by a buyer in the short run and one of my recommendations was that the gses could actually within the uh, limits of the pspa could come in and at, use, at least use what available portfolio was left um, that doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment and, and begin to buy some. That would certainly help rates. There's no question. And in fact, if they, if they went in and bought, it would probably create other technical changes to rates because other market participants would see the GSEs buying and it might bring them in as well. So um, it's weird how the emotions of, of investment happen, but they do. And so, you know, that's one option. I did highlight, as as you well know, the first thing I said is you could do nothing, right? I mean, that's kind of the, um, not to point at my good friend, Mark Calabria, who I'm going to be on stage with debating here soon, but um, I'm certain that he would say, don't intervene. Like, that's the problem with the housing system. There's already too much government. Just let the system work its way out um, and, and and let it adjust on its own. I'm not a fan of that solution, the, the sit on the sideline solution, only because the folks being hurt right now are not wealthy Americans, right? Wealthy Americans, while they prefer to have a 4% rate, they can go buy their $2 million home on a 7.5% rate. And while they may not like it, they can afford it, right? They have enough residual income that they can uh, get that property. What this is really doing, though, is hurting the home buyers and potential home buyers that this administration, particularly this Biden administration, talks a lot about trying to care for, right? African-Americans, Latinos, first-time home buyers, um, people who don't have necessarily a lot of inherited wealth, that kind of thing. So under those scenario, if you want to help those people, there are solutions. The first of which I said already, which is the GSEs could begin to 
trickle some purchasing activity with the available capacity that they have, um, uh, even within the limits of the PSPA. The second would be actually to change the limitations and allow for some tethering of a portfolio balance based on certain market conditions, which could be defined. And that that's a way you could allow them to expand, not indefinitely, but during periods when it's needed uh, to create more stability in the markets. Clearly, the Fed could also start buying, but they bought so much over four, four rounds of quantitative easing since uh, 2009 that I think they're kind of done for now. But um, you know, the GSEs could play a role. We need something to bring um, this spread back down. It will br- it would certainly normalize rates and bring them down closer to six, maybe even the high fives, until the Fed has stopped quantitative tightening and the rest of the yield curve begins to stabilize, which is what will happen over the next year once the Fed stops all this tightening activity that's going on. Do you feel like there's appetite for for uh, the second option there to do something instead of just let it play out? No. I mean, it, it, it feeds a lot into what I've been – the message I've been hounding on um, uh, in my pieces I've written for Housing Wire and elsewhere, which is I really think we have a lack of strong, centralized – uh, leadership with authority around housing policy in this country. Um, and so what worries me is, uh, you know, years ago, the HUD secretary, before the GSEs went into conservatorship and before the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the HUD secretary was the regulator for Fannie, Freddie, and the Federal Home Loan Banks. That, that regulatory office was at HUD reporting up to the secretary. The Office of Regulatory Affairs had a lot of the enforcement stuff that's now over at the Bureau. And and so you once had a cabinet official who, by title, it's not Secretary Fudge's fault. This is just the nature of the job uh, now that they've decentralized a lot of the housing policy authority around over the CFPB, which is a separate independent regulator, and some to the FHFA, which is now separate independent regulator. And then you still obviously have the OCC, the FDIC, you have the Federal Reserve, you have the Treasury Department, all tinker in uh, what should be done with housing um, I think part of the problem about appetite is it's got to rise to the level of attention that brings political pressure on the issue. You know, when we see certain strikes by uh, transportation workers, we see Pete Buttigieg on TV and he, he's got that authority. And, um, you know, when, when, when uh, President Biden travels overseas, you have the secretary of state by his side, a man with authority who can go out and negotiate on behalf of the United States. You tell me who's running housing policy in this country, I'd really like to know because we don't have one. We have a whole bunch of decentralized, uh, not even uh, with obligations to each other, uh, agencies that tinker in it here, there, and everywhere, but nobody can say they're going to try to fix it. So uh, Sandra Thompson, the director of the FHFA, uh, I'm pretty sure she's aware of this issue. I know people have talked to her about it. But it would be a political minefield for her to go back and say, I want to modify the PSPA. She would need the Treasury Department's support, by the way, uh, to do it. And so that would require the Treasury Secretary. And then the Department of Justice would have to come up with the draft with the language because it's a contractual document for the U.S. government. So DOJ writes it, uh, plus the boards of directors of both GSEs to support, uh, just to change that one little amendment to come up with something that provides a little more authority. 
However, I do believe that if the president made this a priority, because housing is not as a political hot ball, a hot issue, as a lot of other things we deal with in, in this country. And I think if the president went forward and said, we need to do something to help first-time home buyers and stabilize interest rates during this uniquely volatile period, our team has an idea, you know, would it happen for sure? Would, it doesn't require congressional support. Would it limit the attacks and maybe get more broad support amongst the regulatory agencies? Probably, because the Treasury Secretary sits in the president's cabinet, and that's the authority that would be required to change the PSBA. Sandra Thompson works at the will of the president. She's not part of the cabinet. She's an independent director. But ever since the Collins Supreme Court case, she is at the will of the president. So, you know, there'd be momentum. There'd be agencies that respond to the White House that could say, "Okay, we're going to solve this problem and try to fix it. No one's calling for that. And um, I we're in a tough election cycle and it's going to get worse before it gets better uh, before the presidential election. And I'm sure the white house, if they were to measure this issue against all others, they'd say, you know, this isn't going to win us votes. It could lose us votes, leave it alone. Um, So it's a tough challenge. It really is. And it goes back to my concern, which I've expressed even going back to my days running the mortgage bankers association, that we don't have a really strong singular voice that's respected to drive housing policy in this country that has the ear of the president. It doesn't exist. It's it's too decentralized. And, you know, to make your point again, it's not because of the people who are in those different positions. It's really the structure of how housing is just decentralized to your point. Like there's just too many fingers in the pot, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's as I said, it's not, it has nothing to do with Secretary Fudge or um, the great leadership at Ginny with Elena and Juliet at FHA, they're all very good people. And the same at the FHFA, Sandra's uh, a very strong leader. and She's got a lot of good people around her who know our industry. It's just that the authority is spread and decentralized through multiple agencies that the lift gets a lot harder, especially when you don't have the momentum of authority that I think a president could give it if it was a, if it was a more serious – Focus. In other words, I'm sorry that we've diminished the value of a cabinet position role that reports to the president and sits with all those other cabinet mem- members when they have cabinet meetings. That's called the HUD secretary because uh, while Secretary Fudge cares deeply about affordable housing and housing access, her uh, her specific authorities are just far too are far more limited than they were pre 2008. That's so interesting. I also think you know when we look back into the spring. And I mean, because affordability is something that people, just your regular consumers understand and and feel the brunt of and can raise an outcry on. But when you come to MBS, it's it's a, a little bit farther afield for them to understand exactly what we're talking about. Whereas when we had the LLPA, you know, right, when we're talking about fees, easy to understand fees. Why is the government raising my fees? But when you're talking about MBS, I think they might get a little bit lost. And so it's harder to like garner that really ground level support for something that, that, that the general public doesn't even know what we're talking about. No, you are, you're absolutely right. I can, um, I, I talk to audiences of loan officers about this issue sometimes, and I can see that a lot of even LOs in our business, longtime LOs don't really understand how MBS markets are made or, uh, how they devolve, the difference between agency MBS and Ginny MBS, and why they trade at different execution points, and all these kinds of things. It, it, it is funny, and the LLPA thing, which you know all too well, became a 
you know, lightning storm <laughs> for all of us who got involved and tried to uh, um, highlight what our concerns were about them. So, yeah, it is it is a complex thing. Capital markets in general is complex. I, As you know, I spent a lot of time on the Hill, um, both when I was the FHA commissioner and then running the MBA, trying to influence uh, members in the House and the Senate. And you could tell those who got it versus those that just like thought it was a foreign language and looked at you like, you know, <laughs> crossed eyes and all of that. So it's tough. It makes it even tougher, unfortunately, because it is a capital markets challenge. And those in the MBS markets, I mean, I, as you know, I put two, I referenced two articles in there and a third one from Christmas blog, but I referenced an article in Forbes uh, or Barron's that uh, Lori Goodman had written. I mean, Lori's brilliant. Anybody in mortgage-backed securities knows her long before in Urban Institute. She was basically head of the Bond Marketing Association in New York. This is her brilliant space. Um, now she's at a think tank in Washington, and she wrote this piece for Barron's. Who read it? Well, I read it. I put it in, I put it in, the, uh, in my op-ed piece for you, but you, know, you can only guess how many people actually read it and understood what's going on there. So that's a problem. It's very esoteric as a topic, but it has huge implications, huge implications to affordability, um, let alone mortgage volumes and mortgage demand for our industry. I think the MBS question, it reminds me of um, a, another issue that you've written about for us, and that is um, on the loan repurchases, because you have government policy that seems to be at odds with itself. So you have the goals of Fannie and Freddie and FHFA, you have everybody on, in the administration who wants to uh, improve affordability. And then you have these things that seemingly don't connect the dots that other things that they're doing that there's pressure to do would would stress that. And so let's talk a little bit about the loan repurchases. And um, you wrote for this uh, about this a, a couple of weeks ago for us. You know, there's been a lot of talk about it from your perspective. Um, can you say that, yes, they're doing more loan repurchases now? Yes, okay. that's definitely the case. And I know they know that too. Every lender knows it. So yes, uh, you know, just real quick, I, I, I appreciated the fact that Matt Ishbia wrote a, a, a piece about it on his own, a comment. And I, oh, it was in HousingWire, and, uh, or you guys covered it. And I, I reposted it and said, good job, Matt. He and I have not always agreed, but he he, he he posted a thank you for your leadership comment under under my reposting of that piece, but you know there when uh, when you get a lot of folks who aren't always in agreement on other policy issues all coming together on something like this, there is something there. When there's enough smoke, there's fire. You know that, that's the reality. Well, and and you know you you said listen, they're targeting IMBs in this, and you know whether that's because IMBs are doing these kind of loans, but it, like the effect is the same. Whatever the intention was, the effect yes. is the same. That you're affecting the people who are doing most of the loans um, that are that are going to be affordable for people. You know, like like you said earlier, you know the ones who aren't don't have two million dollars to spend on a house. Yeah, and think of it this way: um, after the Great Recession, post two thousand eight. We started using the False Claims Act out of HUD with the Department of Justice to file these big bank settlements and huge settlements that then lasted, went on for years against a whole variety of institutions, typically larger ones, a lot of them banks. And the banks left the program. They, they just said, I've had enough. I'm, it's not worth it for me to be doing FHA loans with this uh, double whammy risk of, or triple whammy risk, I guess I'd call it, since it's trouble damages with the False Claims Act. And my worry is, just like we scared the banks out of the mortgage business, 
I worry that this is these are the kinds of moves that can push non-banks to become much more conservative on credit standards and more. And it's the non-banks in America that are providing the broadest opportunity for first-time home buyers, both with FICO score averages and debt-to-income ratio averages, which, by the way, you can get off the Urban Institute website on their monthly chart books, uh, all this data. Uh, I carry it with me all the time and give presentations on it. It's the non-banks who are expanding the marketplace. But the problem is it's a very complicated problem because for the GSEs, they know we're in a tough market. They know a lot of non-banks won't survive. Some are selling. Um, and when you do a pure asset sale, like you sell your mortgage company to a bigger mortgage company, once you uh, sell as an asset sale, the buyer doesn't inherit the reps and warrants. They stay with the originator of the loan who's no longer in business. And so for the GSEs, they worry greatly about what we call counterparty risk because the counterparty risk to them is that whoever's, whoever holds the reps and warrants for fraud or misrep or whatever else may be involved in a, in a file that might be the reason to be pushed back may not be there. When that time comes, they may have sold or been out of business. And so they've clearly stepped up their, um, their, 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 their quality control reviews and, uh, and are reviewing um, files that are even performing loans today. And unlike times in the past, in the old days, I've been in this business too long, four decades now, but even just pre-Great pre Recession, um, they'd give you uh, letters that meant that you had to indemnify the loan or repurchase it if the loan went bad. Um, th those were the letters that Fannie or Freddie would send to a lender. Today, they're not doing that. Today, they're saying, well, I'm not sure you're going to be around. That letter's not worth what it's printed on. you got to buy it back right now. Or there's an alternative of paying 500 basis points, uh, just a, a flat discount fee, uh, and not have to directly buy it back, both of which are extraordinary, you know, painful, especially when we see that so many of these loans are still performing loans. Um, and, you know, Sarah, I, when I was with the MBA, I didn't lead this effort. Our team at MBA did with, a, with, bunch of, with many members. But there were months of negotiation with the GSEs, including FHFA, when Mel Watt was director, um, about uh, coming up with a different way of looking at loan defects uh, so that, for example, you know, a clear fraud or misrepresentation, intentional fraud or misrep is a repurchase. Where on the other hand, a footfall that wouldn't have changed your decision anyway in the loan file, that's a slap on the wrist. Maybe a small financial penalty, but you know, not anything would ever call, cause a repurchase. And so they ended up coming out with a way of tiering the defects of a loan file. In fact, we pushed uh, FHA to try to match it in some way, shape or form. And likewise, uh, the penalties for that scaled from no penalty to potential repurchase if you really had an intentional fraud action committed on a loan file. I've heard that um, many believe that all of that hard work has now been just pushed under the carpet and the GSEs are now run by new people uh, that weren't there back then. The FHFA is now run by a new director and team that weren't back there, weren't around back then. And Credence uh, commitment to the agreements that were really long and difficult and detail-oriented and uh, serious-minded, uh, many believe are not being uh, um, followed. I understand where Freddie and Fannie are coming from, and FHFA. I, I understand the counterparty risks, but 
it is a it is a challenge. And Ishbia talked about this as well. When they're producing record profits in the last quarter, I think up roughly forty percentish over the same quarter a year earlier. Uh, when the rest of the industry is losing money, let's just put it out where it is. Uh, almost every mortgage company in America is losing money this year. Not all of them, but the vast majority, and struggling to survive. These are performing loans. I don't know. It just uh, there's a fairness thing that that concerns me, and there's a there's a um, a reality test that says, what are you going to do about it? We're Fannie and Freddie. You've got nowhere else to sell your loans. Take it or leave it. And so I think uh, somewhere in here brings in the whole discussion about um, working as partners. I had a CEO of a, of a, a very large independent mortgage banking firm in the country, one of the top, very top ones, tell me the other day that you know, it used to be we felt looked at the GSEs as partners, and now we, it seems they view us as competitors. And so, I, I, I just think um, that's not a good system for us to be having. And I, I think there's a reasonableness on both sides. Lenders should be held accountable uh, for significant errors in a loan file. A lot of other variables we talk about, like we call it fat finger errors, like the same processor makes the same error over and over again. We're not. At some point, you got to say, "I'm sorry, you're paying, taking them all back." Because uh, you know, one mistake I understand you repeated over time. It's can't. So, a lot of lot, there's a lot of um, structure you could put in place, and there has to be a recognition on both sides that lenders need to be held accountable for loan quality. But we also know an average loan file is very thick, uh, and you know, to go back and second guess the underwriting of a self-employed borrower. And come up with a different income off of their tax returns. When that can really be a discussion between underwriters based on what addbacks you give off of their self-employed uh, uh, LLC and things of this sort, it's tough. Uh, but nevertheless, it's raising the distress level. I think between industry and the GSEs, uh, I wish there'd be a, a more significant effort by Fannie, Freddie, with FHA, FHFA, perhaps at the leadership. Uh, pulling another group together to say, let's talk this through and let's come up with a set of rules and guidelines that both sides can say have fairness in them. Uh, but I don't think we're there right now based on the feedback I'm getting. Well, and I, I appreciated you uh, going out and talking to a lot of lenders about this. Um, one of the things that you bring up in your piece is the fact that uh, because of that counterparty risk, the GSEs see banks as less risky. So um, they're they have different rules for for the buybacks there that they're allowed to you know um, simply indemnify defective loans in the QC process as opposed to the buyback. So it just seems like a, a another very unfair thing to do. Yeah, and it, it, it's funny because I I got as soon as I wrote that piece, I got calls from several small community banks, and they were like, "Hey, by the way, we're not being let off the hook either. They view us just as risky as they view the non banks." You know, there's certainly a line where you have counterparty risk with small community banks, uh, which, you know, is why Silicon Valley banks, they weren't small, but uh, small compared to Bank of America. Why we're seeing, you know, there's, there is basis risk concern and other balance sheet risks that regulators have over the smaller bank, banks in America as well. It does seem, and this may be anecdotal, and uh, I'm sure the GSEs would point out the errors in what I'm saying, but it does appear based on feedback that the largest banks, are being given more options than the IMBs are when it comes to the buyback scenario. 
Really interesting. Um, do you want to speak real quick um, to the idea that, you know, we could ex- uh, expand federal home loan bank access um, to IMBs? Yeah, I um, look, I, I've been a, I've been an advocate of this all along, uh, it, much to the chagrin of many community banks who use the federal home loan bank system as well as some of the federal home loan bank. But I'm not alone. In fact, some of the even the federal home loan bank heads like the idea. No one's advocating for complete, unfiltered access to the credit windows and more. But there would be an opportunity to be able to pledge uh, servicing, as an example, your MSRs to a federal home loan bank in exchange for some liquidity during a liquidity crunch. Um, Now, the reason why that's important is, let's just take the Ginny May portfolio for a second. As you all know, you have to make on a defaulted loan, uh, non-banks have to, everybody has to advance the full P&I to the investor until you pull the loan out of the pool, even if the borrower is not paying. So you're not getting income from the borrower, but you got to now pay the MBS investor who bought that Ginny May security. That really stresses and strains IMB liquidity lines or repo lines or whatever they have for liquidity during difficult credit periods. But if you if you end up needing that liquidity, why shouldn't there be a way to go to the clubs and, and be able to do swaps for your MSR pool just to get the liquidity to do the advances? There's no risk, right? Because Ginny Mae is an explicit guarantee on that mortgage-backed security. They're going to repay the servicer on that loan, period. End of story. With late charges and everything else that are associated with that, they're going to repay uh, the servicer. And so in the end of the day, this is a way to bring uh, needed liquidity to the IMB community, which is one of the areas that many analysts have been pointing at saying there's liquidity risks in this sector. And, and my own view, Sarah, is that, look, the Federal Home Loan Bank System is also backed by full faith and credit of the United States government, uh, just like Freddie Fannie are in the Ginnie Mae program. They're regulated by the FHFA. They're tools of the federal government. They get a unique privilege with their guarantee of, of the way they function. Why would we limit it to just one set of financial institutions when 90%, 80% of the mortgages in this country are not being created by the folks who are members of the federal home loan bank system? I did, there's an opportunity here to have a limited membership program that's collateralized uh, completely uh, in that marketplace. Dave, thank you so much. I can't believe we're already out of time. I always go so fast when I talk to you. I appreciate you weighing in on these things and also just, you know, giving voice to um, what you're seeing out there in your op-eds with us and with others. It's really, I know it's it's very comforting for people to feel like someone understands what they're going through and, and what the industry is going through and has and gives them a voice for that. So I appreciate you always um, doing that. I know a, a lot of people do. And we'll, we'll keep in touch. If you see, uh, you know, especially if we see any movement towards strengthening, you know, sort of that housing czar position, would love to see that. And uh, but as you said, you know, we're right in the middle of another election season, really tough to get anything done there. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, sir. It's always good to be with you. And I appreciate all the support from you and Housing Wire. Um, It's been a great relationship. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.